We're going to start this retreat with taking refuge in precepts. And those of you who've just finished the uh, two-week retreat have already heard me explain that. But for the others, it's quite important to explain it here now. So you just have to bear with it to hear the same thing again and also our memories being what they are it doesn't hurt to hear the same thing again the first thing I like to explain also and make sure that everybody has a real understanding of the shrine is what is on the shrine and why it's there now obviously there's a Buddha statue there but our reverence is not for a metal statue our reverence and devotion is to the enlightenment factor which is symbolized by a statue man and his symbols we have a physical manifestation of that which we carry within the enlightenment factor is impersonal once a person is enlightened there is no personality there is no person so we have that as a symbol for the greatest ideal that exists something which is far beyond the level on which humanity lives by bowing down to it we accomplish several things first of all if we have devotion in the heart we show that in that physical aspect because devotion is a quality of the heart it is connected to our ability to love we can only be devoted to that which we love so if we have already an understanding of some of the teaching of the Buddha it is entirely necessary for a successful practice to also love it we need both we need heart and mind having both we need both if we only use one we limp on one foot and our progress is slow and very difficult but if we walk on both feet and can stride forward having all our strengths namely that which we understand in the mind and that which we love in the heart our progress will be unimpeded devotion is love and while we do need to understand what the Buddha taught otherwise there isn't going to be any possibility of making it our own we have to have that feeling in the heart that we're here connected to the highest ideal that humanity has ever had and has now our second reason for bowing down is the commitment we commit ourselves to emulate this ideal which is manifested in the enlightenment factor 
the commitment which in itself also contains the humility of realizing that oneself has not had that ideal in oneself yet. However, there is that connectedness, that feeling of really being part of the enlightenment path, which makes it possible for us to have a feeling of humility and commitment and devotion and respect. Now all these qualities in the heart are necessary to have a feeling of being on the path. If we want to get only something out of it, it will never work. We've got to give ourselves to it wholeheartedly. If we give ourselves wholeheartedly to anything, it will work wholeheartedly. If it's something that we want to get, it can't work. Because constantly we will look for results and we have an achievement syndrome. And if we don't get what we want, we'll be dissatisfied and we're having dukkha. Because that's how it arises from wanting. It's the only reason for it arising. But if we give ourselves with devotion, reverence, commitment, gratitude, respect, we don't, ex we don't expect anything, we don't want to get anything, no dukkha. And by giving ourselves like that, we have immediate results, namely that feeling of love in the heart, a feeling of being on this path. So it is the giving which is necessary. The wanting to get something, that's the marketplace mentality. That's how it works in the world. Or I should say how it doesn't work in the world. It just doesn't. Everybody wants to get something. But here we have an opportunity to give ourselves. And to this spiritual path, which the Buddha showed us, one has to give oneself completely. If one only gives oneself partially, well, one may have some partial results from it. We bow down three times, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, because the three are the three jewels. And the three jewels meaning the most valuable thing that exists in the universe. Buddha, enlightenment factor. Dhamma, the teaching or that which upholds one, that which elevates, that which carries us to the enlightenment factor. And Sangha, in this case, those who have become enlightened by following the Dhamma and have propagated it and given it to us so that we still have it available. It is a great debt of gratitude that we owe those who have continually, over the centuries, passed the Dhamma on so that it is actually still alive today, two and a half thousand years after the Parinibbana of the Buddha.
the gratitude to the Sangha. And in this case, it doesn't necessarily mean those who wear robes. It means those who became enlightened and continued to transmit the Dhamma. It also doesn't mean just everybody who sits. It has a very specific meaning. Because if we take refuge, we can only take refuge in the highest. So we have, we bow down three times because we remember those three. And as we bow down, we have those feelings within that are, that we are able to arouse whoever can arouse whatever it may be. There's always candles. And the candle is a symbol for the light in the mind. Enlightenment arises in heart and mind. And it is that which makes everything clear, where one sees with clarity. And as one sees with clarity, everything becomes light, as opposed to dark, but also light as opposed to heavy. There is a lightness then, because there are no obscurations, no dark corners. There is nothing that would have any feeling of being oppressed when the enlightenment factor has arisen and the candle always is a symbol for the light in mind and heart and the flowers which are always there or should always be there they are well they beautify the place a bit but that's not what they're for they are for one reason only, and that is to remind us of our own impermanence. Pretty as a flower today, on the rubbish heap tomorrow. And the flowers which everybody is going to offer to the Buddha statue, and the Buddha, the enlightenment factor, will not even be put in water. So they will perish much quicker. And as they perish, much sooner and if it were hot it would perish even faster we can keep in mind that that's exactly the way we are and only when we get to see impermanence as the overriding factor of all existence and feel ourselves to be that only then are we getting near to an understanding of the teaching and that's why the flowers are there and that's why we don't even put those in water that we offer and then we have the incense and that's a symbol for the beautiful aroma which surrounds a perfectly pure person like the Buddha or his disciples who became Arahants and this beautiful aroma goes far and wide it doesn't just stay right with the incense stick but we can smell it everywhere a totally pure person has an emanation which everybody feels and often don't even know that they do and of course the opposite is true also so that's why we have those three things 
the candle, the incense, and the flower. Now one can, of course, decorate any um, shrine with whatever one likes, but those are the three basic requirements, and they are always there. And our daily prostration to the Buddha statue is a renewed commitment and a renewed determination. Just like making a New Year's resolution every day. It takes a fair bit of inner strength to get to enlightenment. And there's only one reason for meditating and for learning what the Buddha taught. And that is the way to enlightenment. And that inner strength that is needed needs renewed determination. So the daily prostration has that as, as its foundation, the renewed resolution. Renewed resolution and also the ever-present devotion and gratitude and respect for the highest. To take refuge and precept is a privilege and not an obligation. If we want to take advantage of that privilege, that's fine. Nobody is obligated. To be able to do this is a great is of great benefit. For the person who can see what it means, it's not something that we just repeat. To take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha means that we draw near with heart and mind to enlightenment, to the teaching, to those who have given us the teaching. We take refuge, that means we are connected with it. And as we are connected with it, we are sheltered by it. The Dhamma protects the Dhamma practitioner. How does it do that? It's not magic. It's not something that comes from above. The Dhamma in the heart will always protect us. There's no way that we can have any difficulties if we always follow the Dhamma. So taking refuge in it helps us to remember that. Now obviously it's only the Arahant who has become the Dhamma, the enlightened one. But the more we draw near to it, the more we are protected by it. And there is no place in all of existence which is safe. Nowhere. The only safe place is to have Dhamma in the heart. So when we take shelter, we have found something that can give us, eventually, when we have personified it in ourselves, complete safety. That's the taking of refuge. And we take it in 
those three the greatest jewels that there are the greatest value that which is beyond all material value that which is the greatest spiritual value if we are really aware of how it can protect us then we will try never to act think or speak in contradiction to it and when we do we will realize that our protection at that moment has stopped and then we will try to get back into that shelter taking the five precepts means a renewal of a commitment to lead a life that has more conduct as its base but at the same time it also means a commitment not only to refrain from certain things but also to cultivate their opposites so when we look at the first precept of not killing not harming we at the same time and immediately recognize the fact that the practice means to develop loving kindness killing and harming is cruelty and arises out of hate hate is never conquered by hate hate is conquered by love alone so in order to conquer our inborn and very deeply ingrained negativities we counteract them with with the, those positive abilities we also have they're just as much ingrained in us but it means that we recognize that we need to foster one and try to refrain from the other so when we make an assertion that we will not kill we at the same time also make an assertion that we want to develop love and compassion love and compassion not because there is somebody that wants love or needs love but strictly because our heart needs to be cultivated in that direction it is the education of the heart the education and cultivation of the heart quality which is the most important thing that brings us a state of purity when we 
commit ourselves to not take anything that's not given, which means robbing or stealing or even just being inconsiderate towards other people's belongings, we at the same time make the determination to be generous, to give, and not in order to gain, to gain gratitude or fame or a personal satisfaction, but generous to give because of the simple fact that we're all in this together. And whatever we have is part of the whole of creation and if we share it, that is the only way we'll ever live together happily. So when we assert that we will not take anything that's not given at the same time, we also recognize the fact that there is a totality of existence and that to be generous and giving is the only sensible thing that we can do. When we make an assertion and a determination not to refrain from sexual misconduct, we at the same time have in mind that we want to be faithful and true. And that applies to all our relationships with friends, with fellow practitioners, with teachers, with colleagues at work, with neighbors, anyone that we have any dealings with, to be responsible and reliable that when we promise, we will keep it, that when we say something, we mean it. When we have friends, we will stick by them. We, it means letting go of a lot of judgmental mind. Our judgments are based on viewpoints, and viewpoints are notoriously short-sighted. They have no absolute truth to them. So this kind of determination to refrain from sexual misconduct carries that con contrary behavior within, namely the kind of reliability, faithfulness, trustworthiness, which helps one to have self-confidence in oneself. If we know we are trustworthy, reliable, that we can always be counted upon that we do not forsake our friends. We feel at ease about ourselves. And only a person who feels at ease about him or herself is a person whose meditation will flourish. And the fourth precept tells us to refrain from lying, harsh words, and idle chatter. 
When we make a determination to refrain from wrong speech, we at the same time make a determination to use right speech. And right speech is not so easy to determine because the mind is very fickle and it justifies. So we need to really examine what is right speech. And the Buddha said, it has to be true, helpful, and spoken at the right time. So we can use that criteria and see whether it applies. Right speech does not mean that we have to agree to everything, but it has to be helpful and true and at the right time. So underlying it all, there has to be a feeling of wanting to be helpful without any any stings, without any strings attached, that one wants something out of it. The less we want, the less dukkha we have. So the last one, to refrain from intoxicating drinks and drugs. The opposite is mindfulness. And that is a topic and a mental formation which needs to be practiced specifically during your retreat. If there is no mindfulness, there is no practice. Mindfulness means being awake and aware, alert and introspective. To know what is going on within oneself, but also to know what's going on around oneself. Internal and external mindfulness. Obviously there will be more said about that. But because this is our first evening, and because one has to start having the mind directed towards the retreat situation, we need to turn our mind away from that which happens in the world all the time and turn it towards ourselves. Everybody meditates for him or herself. Everybody is mindful for him or herself. So we need to watch ourselves. Four foundations of mindfulness. I'll briefly say them because those of you who've just finished the retreat have heard about it for days on end. But I will manage, um, mention them briefly because it's absolutely essential that this is part of everybody's practice. Otherwise, it's hit or miss. It's a potluck practice. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And also, it becomes very often an escape mechanism. Meditation is not for escape. Meditation is for knowing it exactly, just the opposite. 
four foundations. First one is the body. Now that's a very important one. The second one is the feeling. Third one, mental, emotional states. And the fourth one, the content of the mind. Now to put it briefly, body is our actions. Mindfulness of the body, what are we doing with our body? How are we conducting ourselves? How are we using the body? Are we using it in a way which is unnecessary, restless and agitated? Or are we actually aware of what we're doing? A person who is mindful of bodily action will save a lot of energy and also make life much simpler for him or herself. It's also a very good way of using one's body because at the time of being mindful there is no way that we can be negative. We're either mindful or negative. We can't be both. Obviously we can do both in quick succession but not at the same time. And that's why the Buddha said that one, only one way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming pain, grief and lamentation, for the final elimination of all dukkha, for entering the noble path, for realizing Nibbana, and that's mindfulness. Nothing else was ever said about it like that. So the first step is the purification of beings. And this is exactly that. Mindfulness is a mental formation. If the mental formation of mindfulness has arisen, no greed or hate can arise at the same time. One is either this or that. Mindfulness of the body is considered by the Buddha an enormously important aspect. And he has given many different ways of doing it. I won't go into all of those. They'll probably arise during the retreat. But at this point, watching one's walking, watching one sitting down, watching opening the door, just opening the door, nothing else, closing it. Washing dishes while washing dishes. Everybody's going to wash their own dishes. Washing dishes while washing dishes. Peeling carrots while peeling carrots. Dressing, undressing. Lying down, getting up, going to the toilet, taking a shower. So many activities, all can be done mindfully. There are no cars here that can run over us. We don't have to watch any of that. We can be totally mindful. Now, when it's wet like this, it's also slippery. Mindfulness of every step. The feelings that arise give rise to our mental emotional state. And it's very interesting to watch how this arises. 
and we will probably talk more about not probably certainly talk more about the four mental aggregates which have feeling as the second step after all sense consciousness and if we really become aware of feeling we have a measure with which we can direct our reactions if we go past the feeling the reaction shows itself in our mental emotional states so we can watch that the mental emotional states <coughs> which sometimes are wholesome and sometimes not but they need not dissolve or result in our content of the mind the mental emotional state can be irritation but we don't have to get irritated the mental emotional state may be boredom but we don't have to get bored we can watch the state arising and ceasing we can see the mental emotional state as something which the mind just does and we don't have to act upon it when we do when it's gone past that we will have the content of the mind and when we watch that at this point all i'm going to say about it is is it wholesome or unwholesome We can watch our content of mind by seeing quite clearly whether whatever it is that we're thinking will bring happiness or unhappiness. Is it something that has wholesomeness and benefit in it or the opposite? Now to see that clearly, it will help us to label all the discursive thinking the distracting thoughts which arise in the meditation practice if we get concentrated we don't have to label a thing but if the dis- discursive thinking arises and if there is distraction please label label it with the first label that comes to mind it may be future or past it may be fantasy or hoping or planning or remembering or worrying or fearing that labeling makes it possible to watch that thought dissolve and go back to the breath it also makes it possible to substitute in daily life the unwholesome with the wholesome because it's exactly the same action here we substitute all thoughts with the meditation subject in daily life we substitute the unwholesome with the wholesome having learned to label in meditation we continue labeling in daily life that
to the when we take the precepts and our determination to have mindfulness should arise. So we don't just refrain from five things when we take the precepts, but we also determine that we will try to cultivate loving-kindness, generosity, trustworthiness and peacefulness, the kind of speech which is helpful and true, and mindfulness. And with that determination, we have a good start for practice. Now, the way we're going to do it is each one, and again, I, I, I want to uh, emphasize this is a privilege and not an obligation. Everyone who wants to do it comes up here and lights one of the incense sticks on the candles, which will have been lit by that time. And I've put some greenery there on the side because it was too wet to go out and get some new stuff and each one can offer that to the Buddha a piece of the greenery and then prostrate by keeping in mind the devotion, the gratitude, the respect and the reverence for the highest and then go back to the seat and then as we are ready to take precept and, and refuge, I will chant it in Pali, my voice has not stopped by then, and then <coughs> say it in English, and uh, you repeat it after me in English, so that you know exactly what you're saying. Although it sounds rather nice in Pali, and it is a traditional way of doing it, it's much more important that one knows exactly what one is saying. While we're doing it, we hold the hands in Anjali, which is like this, which means it's coming from my heart. And it is a nice way of also having a feeling of mindfulness of the body, because one has to keep that attention. coming from our heart and I'll chant in Pali and then say it in English and you repeat in, in English after me <coughs> the first thing I'm going to chant is just the uh, traditional formula of worship for the Buddha I won't repeat that in English <coughs> Namo Tassa Bhagavato Rahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Rahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Rahato Sama Sambuddhasa 
I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Buddha. Dhammang saranangachami I take refuge in the Dhamma. I take refuge in the Dhamma. Sanghang saranangachami I take refuge in the Sangha. I take refuge in the Sangha. Duteampi budhang saranangachami For the second time I take refuge in the Buddha. For the second time I take refuge in the Buddha. Duteampi dhammang saranangachami For the second time I take refuge in the Dhamma. For the second time, I take refuge in the Dhamma. Do Sanghang Saranang For the second time, I take refuge in the Sangha. For the second time, I take refuge in the Sangha. For the third time, I take refuge in the Buddha. For the third time, I take refuge in the Buddha. Tateampi dhammang saranangachami For the third time, I take refuge in the Dhamma. For the third time, I take refuge in the Dhamma. Tateampi sanghang saranangachami For the third time I take refuge in the Sangha. For the third time I take refuge in the Sangha. Sanagamanang sampunang Panatipatta veramanisika Padam samadhyami I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. I undertake the training to refrain from taking what is not given. I undertake the training to refrain I undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. Musavada veramani sika padam samadhyami I undertake the training to refrain from lying and harsh words. I undertake the training to refrain from lying and harsh words. Sura Maryam Majapamadatana veramani sika Padam samadhyami 
I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating drinks and drugs. Tisaranena sadhim pancha silang dhammang sadukang surakitang katva pamadena sampadeta. That means, may the taking of refuge and precepts be for your benefit and your well-being. Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment again. Let appreciation arise in your heart for the effort you're making. Appreciate yourself for trying to concentrate, to meditate, to follow the teaching of the Buddha. Let this appreciation fill you from head to toe. And then let forgiveness arise in you for anything that you think you've done wrong in the past. Forgive yourself completely. And surround yourself with that forgiveness and fill yourself with appreciation. Put your attention on the person nearest you in this room and fill him or her with appreciation of the effort that person is making. Appreciate that person sincerely. And forgive him or her for anything you may think they're not doing right or well. Complete acceptance and appreciation. And now spread that to everyone.
Now think of your parents. Appreciate them for all the efforts they have made. Fill them with your appreciation. Forgive them for anything you think they might have done wrong. Embrace them with your forgiveness. Think of the people who are nearest and dearest to you. Fill them with your appreciation of everything they do, their good things they try. And forgive them for anything that you may have disliked. Fill them with appreciation and embrace them with forgiveness. Think of all your good friends. Appreciate all the good things they do, all the efforts they make. Fill them with that appreciation. Forgive them for anything that you may have disliked. Embrace them with your forgiveness. Think of all the people who are part of your life, neighbors, colleagues at work, acquaintances, relations, people you meet here and there. Think of them. Appreciate them for all the good things you know about them. Forgive them anything that you may have disliked. Fill them with the sincerity of your appreciation. Embrace them with your forgiveness.
there's anybody in your life whom you find difficult to get along with or whom you dislike or feel totally indifferent appreciate that person for all the good things you know about him or her and embrace that person with complete forgiveness for anything you may have disliked And now think of people in the world about whom you might know and whom you might be judging. Appreciate them for anything good that you might know about them or surmise. Forgive them for anything you might think they're doing wrongly. Let your heart speak to them with appreciation. Embrace them with your forgiveness. And now put your attention back on yourself. Feel joyful and appreciative of all the good things that you know about yourself. Be joyful about the fact that you can also appreciate others. And then let the forgiveness surround you like a soft mantle in which you can feel at ease.
let people everywhere appreciate and forgive each other. <laughs>